Welcome to a continued reading of the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bootner. Chapter 8. The Scriptures are the final authority by which systems are to be judged. In all matters of controversy between Christians, the Scriptures are accepted as the highest court of appeal. Historically, they have been the common authority of Christendom. We believe that they contain one harmonious and sufficiently complete system of doctrine, that all of their parts are consistent with each other, and that it is our duty to trace out this consistency by a careful investigation of the meaning of particular passages. The Word of God, says Warburton, concerning these doctrines, is the great and final tribunal before which they must be brought and by which they must be tried. And the truth or falsity of our belief is measured by the corresponding agreement with, or diversity from, that form of doctrine which is set forth in the unerring revelation that God has given to us in his inspired word. It is by this criterion that Calvinism must be tried. It is by this criterion that Arminianism or Pelagianism must be tried. It is by this criterion, and by this criterion alone, that every form of belief, be it religious or be it scientific, must be tried. And if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We believe in the full verbal inspiration of the word of God. We hold it to be the only authority in all matters, and assert that no doctrine can be true or essential if it does not find a place in this word. It is obvious that the truth or falsity of this profound doctrine of predestination can be decided only by divine revelation. No person acting merely on his own observations and judgments can know what are the basic principles of the plan which God is following. Philosophical speculation and all abstract reasoning should be held in abeyance until we have first heard the testimony of Scripture and when we have heard that testimony, we should humbly submit. Would that we had more people with that noble character of the Bereans, who searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. In connection with each of the doctrines discussed in this book, we have presented a large mass of scripture evidence, evidence both direct and inferential, Evidence which cannot be answered or explained away. Evidence greatly superior in strength, extent and explicitness to any that can be adduced on the other side. The Bible unfolds a scheme of redemption which is Calvinistic from beginning to end. And these doctrines are taught with such inescapable clearness that the question is settled for all those who accept the Bible as a word of God. These doctrines are set forth in the most impressive way. And the unstudied naturalness and simplicity with which they are given makes them all the more impressive. Should anyone ask us the question, are there any stars in the heavens? Our answer would be, the heavens are full of stars. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. Or again, are there any fishes in the sea? Our answer would be, the sea is full of fishes. Psalm 104, 25, 27. Or again, are there any trees in the forest? We would again reply, the forest is full of trees. And in like manner, should we be asked the question, 
is the doctrine of predestination in the Bible? Our answer should be, the Bible is full of it, from Genesis to Revelation. That such doctrines as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the personality of the Holy Spirit, the sinfulness of man, and the reality of future punishments are scriptural, is not denied even by those who refuse to accept them as true. It is a common thing for rationalists and so-called higher critics to admit that the apostles believed and taught the evangelical and Calvinistic doctrines, and that with the strict application of the rules of exegesis, their statements cannot admit of any other interpretation. But of course they do not consider themselves bound to accept the authority of any apostle. They ascribe the apostles' belief in these doctrines, for instance, to the erroneous notions of a crude and uncivilized age. This, however, does not detract from the value of their testimony that these passages, critically interpreted, can have no other meaning. Further, we would prefer to say, with the rationalists, that the scriptures teach these doctrines, but that the scriptures are no authority for us, rather than to profess acceptance of their teaching while ingeniously evading the force of their argument. We shall show that there is no great difficulty, no undue violence or straining required, to interpret consistently with our doctrine the passages which are brought forth by Arminians, while it is impossible without the most unwarrantable and unnatural forcing and straining to reconcile their doctrine with our passages. Furthermore, our doctrine could not be overthrown merely by bringing forth other passages which would contradict it, for that at most would only give us a self-contradictory Bible. In the light of modern scientific exegesis, it is quite evident that the objections which are raised against the Reformed theology are emotional or philosophical rather than exegetical. And had men been content to interpret the language of Scripture according to the acknowledged principles of interpretation, the faith of Christians might have been far more harmonious. Our opponents, says Cunningham, are able to argue with some plausibility only when they are dealing with single passages or particular classes of passages, but keeping out of view or throwing into the background the general mass of Scripture evidence bearing upon the whole subject. When we take a conjunct view of the whole body of Scripture statements, manifestly intended to make known to us the nature, causes, and consequences of Christ's death, literal and figurative, view them in combination with each other, and fairly estimate what they are fitted to teach, there is no good ground for doubt as to the general conclusions we should, should, we should feel ourselves constrained to adopt. So long as we hold to the Reformed principle that the Scriptures are to be accepted as a sole authority in matters of doctrine, the Calvinistic system will stand as the only one which adequately treats of God, man, and redemption. Chapter 9 A Warning Against Undue Speculation Just at this point, we shall give a few words of warning against undue speculation and curiosity in dealing with this lofty doctrine of predestination. Perhaps we can do no better than to quote the words of Calvin himself 
which are found in the first section of his treatment of this subject. The discussion of predestination, a subject of itself rather intricate, is made very perplexed and therefore dangerous by human curiosity, which no barriers can restrain from wandering into forbidden labyrinths and from soaring beyond its sphere, as if determined to leave none of the divine secrets unscrutinized or unexplored. First then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they penetrate into the inmost recesses of divine wisdom, where the careless and confident intruder will obtain no satisfaction to his curiosity. For we know that when we have exceeded the limits of the word, we shall get into a devious and irksome course, in which errors, slips and falls will be inevitable. Let us then, in the first place, bear in mind that to desire any more knowledge of predestination than that which is unfolded in the word of God indicates as great a folly as to wish to walk through impassable roads or to see in the dark. Nor let us be, asch nor let us be ashamed to be ignorant of some things relative to a subject in which there is a kind of learned ignorance. We are not under obligation to explain these truths. We are only under obligation to state what God has revealed in his word. And to vindicate these statements as far as possible from misconception and objections. In the nature of the case, all that we can know concerning such profound truths is what the Spirit has seen fit to reveal concerning them. Being confident that whatever God has revealed is undoubtedly true, and is to be believed, although we may not be able to sound its depths with the line of our reason. In our ignorance of his interrelated purposes, we are not fitted to be his counsellors. Our judgments are a great deep, said the psalmist. As well might man attempt to swim the ocean as to fathom the judgments of God. Man knows far too little to justify him in attempting to explain the mysteries of God's rule. The importance of the subject discussed should lead us to proceed only with profoundest reverence and caution. While it is true that mysteries are to be handled with care, and while unwarranted and presumptuous speculations concerning divine things are to be avoided, yet if we would declare the gospel in its purity and fullness, we must be careful not to withhold from believers what is declared in scriptures concerning predestination that some of these truths will be perverted and abused by the ungodly is to be expected. No matter how plainly it is taught in Scripture, the unenlightened mind considers it as, as, as absurd, for instance, that one God should exist in three persons, or that God should foreknow the entire course of world events, as that his plan should include the destiny of every person. While we cannot know only as much about predestination as God has seen fit to reveal, it is important that we shall know that much, otherwise it would not have been revealed. Where scripture leads, we may safely follow. The five points of Calvinism. The Calvinistic system especially emphasizes five distinct doctrines. These are technically known as the 
five points of Calvinism, and they are the main pillars upon which the superstructure rests. In this section, we shall examine each, one, each of these, giving the scripture basis and the arguments from reason which support them. We shall then consider the objections which are commonly brought against them. As will be shown, the Bible contains an abundance of material for the development of each of these doctrines. Furthermore, these are not isolated and independent doctrines, but are so interrelated that they form a simple, harmonious, self-consistent system, and the way in which they fit together as component parts of a well-ordered whole has won the admiration of thinking men of all creeds. Prove any one of them true, and all the others follow as logical and necessary parts of the system. Prove any one of them false, and the whole system must be abandoned. They are found to dovetail perfectly one into the other. There are so many links in the great chain of causes, and not one of them can be taken away without marring and subverting the whole gospel plan of salvation through Christ. We cannot conceive of this agreement arising merely by accident, nor even being possible unless these doctrines are true. Let it be borne in mind that in this book we do not propose to discuss in detail those other doctrines of the scriptures which are accepted by evangelical Christendom, but to set forth and defend those which are peculiar to the Calvinistic system. Unless this be kept in mind, much of the real strength and beauty of generic Calvinism will be lost in the so-called five points of Calvinism, which historically and in reality are the obverse of what might be called the five points of Arminianism, will assume undue prominence in the system. Let the reader then guard against a too close identification of the five points and the Calvinistic system. While these are essential elements, the system really includes much more. As stated in the introduction, the Westminster Confession is a balanced statement of the Reformed faith or Calvinism, and it gives due prominence to the other Christian doctrines. The five points may be more easily remembered if they are associated with the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Total inability, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible, efficacious grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. Chapter 10. Total inability. 1. Statement of the Doctrine. 2. The extent and effects of original sin. 3. The defects in man's common virtues. 4. The fall of man. 5. The representative principle. 6. The goodness and severity of God. 7. Scripture proof. In the Westminster Confession, the doctrine of total inability is stated as follows. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from good, 
and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereto, thereunto. Paul, Augustine and Calvin have as their starting point the fact that all mankind sinned in Adam and that all men are without excuse. Romans 2.1 Time and again Paul tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins, estranged from God and helpless. In writing to the Ephesian Christians, he reminded them that before they received the gospel, they were separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 2.12 There we notice the fivefold emphasis as he piles praise on top of praise to stress this truth. Two, the extent and effects of original sin. This doctrine of total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God or to do anything meriting salvation. His corruption is extensive, but not necessarily intensive. It is in this sense that man, since the fall, is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. He possesses a fixed bias of the will against God, and instinctively and willingly turns to evil. He is an alien by birth, and a sinner by choice. The inability under which he labours is not an inability to exercise volitions, but an inability to be willing to exercise holy volitions. And it is this phase of it which led Luther to declare that free will is an empty term whose reality is lost. And a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. In matters pertaining to his salvation, the unregenerate man is not at liberty to choose between good and evil, but only to choose between greater and lesser evil, which is not properly free will. The fact, the fact that fallen man still has ability to do certain acts morally good in themselves does not prove that he can do acts meriting salvation, for his motives may be wholly wrong. Man is a free agent, but he cannot originate the love of God in his heart. He, his will is free in the sense that it is not controlled by any force outside of himself. As a bird with a broken wing is free to fly, but not able, so the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. How can he repent of his sin when he loves it? How can he come to God when he hates him? This is the inability of the will under which man labours. Jesus said, and this is the judgment, that light is come into the world, 
And men loved darkness rather than light, for their works were evil. John 3.19 And again, ye will not come to me, that ye may have life. John 5.40 Man's ruin lies mainly in his own perverse will. He cannot come because he will not. Help enough is provided if he were only willing to accept it. Paul tells us, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 To assume that because man has ability to love, he therefore has ability to love God, it's about as wise to assume that since water has the ability to flow, it therefore has the ability to flow uphill. Or to reason that because a man has power to cast himself from the top of a precipice to the bottom, he therefore has equal power to transport himself from the bottom to the top. Fallen man sees nothing desirable in the one who is altogether lovely, the fairest amongst ten thousand. He may admire Jesus as a man, but he wants nothing to do with him as God, and he resists the outward holy influences of the Spirit with all his power. Sin, and not righteousness, has become his natural element, so that he has no desire for salvation. Man's fallen nature gives rise to a most obdurate blindness, stupidity, and opposition concerning the things of God. His will is under the control of a darkened understanding, which puts sweet for bitter, and bitter for sweet, good for evil, and evil for good. So far as his relations with God are concerned, he wills only that which is evil, although he wills it freely. Spontaneity and enslavement actually exist together. In other words, fallen man is so morally blind that he uniformly prefers and chooses evil instead of good, as do the fallen angels or demons. When the Christian is completely sanctified, he reaches a state in which he uniformly prefers and chooses good, as do the holy angels. Both of these states are consistent with freedom and responsibility of moral agents. Yet while fallen man acts thus uniformly, he is never compelled to sin. He does it freely and delights in it. His dispositions and desires are so inclined and he acts knowingly and willingly from spontaneous motion of the heart. This natural bias or appetite for that which is evil is characteristic of man's fallen and corrupt nature. So that as Job says, he drinketh iniquity like water Chapter 15:16. We read that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2:14. We are at a loss to understand how anyone can take a plain common sense view of this passage of Scripture and yet contend for the doctrine of human ability. Man in his natural state cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less can he get into it. An uncultured person 
they see a beautiful work of art as an object of vision, but he has no appreciation of its excellence. He may see the figures of a complex mathematical equation, but they have no meaning for him. Horses and cattle may see the same beautiful sunset or other phenomena in nature that men see, but they are blind to all of their artistic beauty. So it is when the gospel of the cross is presented to the unregenerate man. He may have an intellectual knowledge of the facts and doctrines of the Bible, but he lacks all spiritual discernment of their excellence and finds no delight in them. The same Christ is to one man, without form or comeliness, that we should desire him. To another he is the Prince of Life and the Saviour of the world, God manifest in the flesh, whom it is impossible not to adore, love and obey. This total inability, however, arises not merely from a perverted moral nature, but also from ignorance. Paul wrote that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. Ephesians 4, 17, 18. And again, the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. When he wrote of things which I saw not, and ear heard not, and which entered not into the heart of man, whatsoever things God hath prepared for them that love him, he had, rever- he had reference not to the glories of the heavenly state, as is commonly supposed, but to the spiritual realities in this life, which cannot be seen by the unregenerate mind, as is made plain by the words of the following verse. But unto us, God revealed them through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. On one occasion, Jesus said, No, man, no, no one knoweth the Father, no, no one knoweth the Son, save the Father, neither doth any know the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Here we are plainly told that man in his unregenerate, unenlightened nature does not know God in any sense worthy of the name, and that the Son is sovereign in choosing who shall come into this saving knowledge of God. Fallen man lacks the power of spiritual discernment. His reason or understanding is blinded, and the taste and feelings are perverted. And since his state of mind is innate, as a condition of man's nature, it is beyond the power of the will to change it. Rather, it controls both the affections and volitions. The effect of regeneration is clearly taught in the divine commission which Paul received at his conversion when he was told that he was was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Acts 26:18. Jesus taught the same truth under a different figure when he said to the Pharisees, Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father it is 
the lusts of your father it is your will to do. John 8, 43-44 They could not understand nor even hear his words in any intelligible way. To them his words were only foolishness, madness, and they accused him of being demon-possessed, verses 48-52. Only his disciples could know the truth, verses 31-32. The Pharisees were children of the devil, verses 42-44, and bondservants of sin, verses 34, although they thought themselves free, verse 33. At another time, Jesus taught that a good tree could not bring forth evil fruit, nor an evil tree good fruit. And since this similitude, and since in this similitude the good and evil trees represent good and evil men, what does it mean that the one class of men is governed by one set of basic principles, while the other class is governed by another set of basic principles? The fruits of these two trees are acts, words, thoughts, which, if good, proceed from a good nature, and if evil, proceed from an evil nature. It is impossible, then, for one and the same root to bring forth fruit of different kinds. Hence, we deny the existence in man of a power which may act either way on the logical ground that both virtue and vice cannot come out of the same moral condition of the agent. We affirm that human actions which relate to God proceed either out of a moral condition which necessarily produces good actions or out of a moral condition which necessarily produces evil actions. In the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul declares that prior to the quickening of the Spirit of God, each individual soul lies dead in trespasses and sins. Now it will, be sh now it will surely be admitted that to be dead, and to be dead in sin, is clear and positive evidence that there is neither aptitude nor power remaining for the performance of any spiritual action. If a man were dead, in a natural and physical sense. It would at once be readily granted that there is no further possibility of that man being able to perform any physical actions. A corpse cannot act in any way whatever, and that man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserted that he could. If a man is dead spiritually, therefore, it is surely equally as evident that he is unable to perform any spiritual actions. And thus the doctrine of man's moral inability rests upon strong scriptural evidence. On the principle that no clean thing can come out of what is unclean, Job 14.4, all that are born of women are declared abominable and corrupt, to whose nature iniquity alone is attractive, Job 15.14-16. Accordingly, to become sinful, men do not wait until the age of accountable action arises. Rather, they are apostates from the womb, and as soon as they are born go astray, speaking lies, Psalm 58.3. They are even shapen in iniquity, 
and conceived in sin, Psalm 51.5. The propensity of their heart is evil from their youth, Genesis 8.21. And it is out of the heart that all the issues of life proceed, Proverbs 4.23.20.11. Acts of sin are therefore but the expression of the natural heart, which is deceitful above all things and exceedingly corrupt. Jeremiah 17.9 Ezekiel presents this same truth in graphic language and gives us the picture of a helpless infant who is cast out in his blood and left to die but which the Lord graciously found and cared for in chapter 16. This doctrine of original sin supposes that fallen men have the same kind of and degree of liberty in sinning under the influence of a corrupt nature, as have the devil and the demons, or that the saints in glory and the holy angels have in acting rightly under the influence of a holy nature. That is, men and angels act according to their natures. As the saints and angels are confirmed in holiness, that is, possessed of a nature which is wholly inclined to righteousness and adverse to sin, so the nature of fallen men and of demons is such that they cannot perform a single act with right motives toward God. Hence the necessity that God shall sovereignly change a person's character in regeneration. The Old Testament ceremonies of circumcision of the newborn child and of purification of the mother were designed to teach that man comes into the world sinful, that since the fall, human nature is corrupt in its very origin. Paul stated this truth in another, and if possible, even stronger way in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to them that perish, in whom the God of this world, by which he means the devil, hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should dawn upon them. In a word then, fallen men without operations of the Spirit of God are under the rule of Satan. They are led captive by him at his will. 2 Timothy 2.26 So long as this strong man, fully armed, is not molested by the stronger than he, he keeps his kingdom in peace, and his captives willingly do his bidding. But the stronger than he has overcome him, has taken his armor from him, and has liberated a part of his captives. Luke 11:21-22. God now exercises the right of releasing whom he will, and all born-again Christians are ransomed sinners from that kingdom. The scriptures declare that fallen man is a captive, a willing slave to sin, and entirely unable to deliver himself from its bondage and corruption. He is incapable of understanding and much less of doing the things of God. That is what we might, there is, there is what we might term the freedom of slavery a state in which the subject is free only to do the will of his master, which, is, which in this case is sin. It was this to which Jesus referred when he said, 
Everyone that committeth sin is the bondservant of sin, John 8.34. And such being the depths of man's corruption, it is wholly beyond his own power to cleanse himself. His only hope of amendment of life lies accordingly in a change of heart, which change is brought about by the sovereign, recreative power of the Holy Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. As well might one attempt to pump a leaking ship while the leak is still unmended, as to reform the unregenerate without this inward change. Or as well might the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots, as he who is accustomed to do evil correct his ways. This transfer from spiritual death to spiritual life we call regeneration. It is referred to in scripture by various terms. Regeneration, a making alive, a calling out of darkness into light, a quickening, a renewing, a taking away of the heart of stone and giving the heart of flesh, etc. Which work is exclusively that of the Holy Spirit. As a result of this change, a man comes to see the truth and gladly accepts it. His very instincts and intimate impulses are transferred to the side of law, obedience to which becomes but a spontaneous expressions of his nature. Regeneration is said to be wrought by that same supernatural power which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1, 18-20 Man does not possess the power of self-regeneration. And until this inward change takes place, he cannot be convinced of the truth of the gospel by any amount of external testimony. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rise from the dead. The defects in man's common virtues. The unregenerate man can, through common grace, love his family, and he may be a good citizen. He may give a million dollars to build a hospital, but he cannot give even a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of Jesus. If a drunkard, he may abstain from drink for utilitarian purposes, but he cannot do it out of love for God. All of his common virtues or good works have a fatal defect in that his motives which prompt them are not to glorify God, a defect so vital that it throws any element of goodness after man wholly into the shade. It matters not how good the works may be in themselves, for so long as the doer of them in harmony of, in out of his, so long as the doer of them is out of harmony with God, none of his works are spiritually acceptable. Furthermore, the good works of the unregenerate have no stable foundation, for his nature is still unchanged, and as naturally and as certainly as a washed sow returns to a wallowing in the mire, so he sooner or later returns to his evil ways. In the realm of morals, it is a rule that the morality of man must precede the morality of the action. One may speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 
So the media, if he is lacking that inward principle of love toward God, he has become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. He may give all his goods to feed the poor and may give his body to be burned, yet if he lacks that inward principle, it profits him nothing. As human beings, we know that an act of service rendered to us by whatsoever utilitarian motives prompted by someone who is at heart our enemy does not merit our love and approbation. The scripture statement that without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto God finds its explanation in this, that faith is the foundation of all the other virtues and nothing is acceptable to God which does not flow from right feelings. A moral act is to be judged by the standard of love to God, which love is, as it were, the soul of all other virtue, and which is bestowed upon us only through grace. Augustine did not deny the existence of natural virtues, such as moderation, honesty, generosity, which constitute a certain merit among men. But he drew a broad line of distinction between these and the specific Christian graces, faith, love, and gratitude to God, etc., which alone are good in the strict sense of the word, and which alone have value before God. This distinction is very plainly illustrated in an example given by Rob W.D. Smith, says he, in a gang of pirates, we may find many things that are good in themselves. Though they are in wicked rebellion against the laws of the government, they have their own laws and regulations which they obey strictly. We find among them courage and fidelity with many other things that will recommend them as pirates. They may do many things too, which the laws of the government require, but they are not done because the government has so required but in obedience to their own regulations. For instance, the government requires honesty, and they may be strictly honest, one with another, in their transactions and the division of all their spoil. Yet, as respects the government and the general principle, their whole life is one of most wicked dishonesty. Now it is plain that while they continue in their rebellion, they can do nothing to recommend them to the government as citizens. Their first step must be to give up their rebellion, acknowledge their allegiance to the government, and sue for mercy. So all men, in their natural state, are rebels against God. And though they may do many things which the law of God requires, and which will recommend them as men, yet nothing is done with reverence to God and his law. Instead, the regulations of society, respect for public opinion, self-interest, their own character in the sight of the world, or some other worldly or wicked motive, reign supremely. And God, to whom they owe their heart and lives, is forgotten. Or, if thought at all, his claims are wickedly rejected. His counsel spurned, and the heart, in obstinate rebellion, refuses obedience. Now it is plain that while the heart continues in this state, the man is a rebel against God and can do nothing to recommend him to his favour. The first step is to give up his rebellion, repent of his sins, 
turn to God and sue for pardon and reconciliation through the Saviour. This he is unwilling to do until he is made willing. He loves his sins and will continue to love them until his heart is changed. The good actions of unregenerate men, Smith continues, are not positively sinful in themselves, but sinful from defect. They lack the principle which alone can make them righteous in the sight of God. In the case of the pirates, it is easy to see that all their actions are with us, actions are sin against the government. While they continue pirates, their sailing, mending, or rigging the vessel, and even their eating and drinking, are all sins in the eyes of the government, as they are only so many expedients to enable them to continue their piratical career, and are parts of their life of rebellion. So are sinners. While the heart is wrong, it vitiates everything in the sight of God, even their most ordinary occupations. For the plain, unequivocal language of God is, even the lamp of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 21.4 It is this inability which the scriptures teach when they declare that they, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.8 8. Whatsoever is not of faith, Romans 14.23, and without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing to him, Hebrews 11.6. Hence even the virtues of the unregenerate men, man, are but as plucked and fading flowers. It was because of this that Jesus said to his disciples, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And because those virtues are of this nature, they are only temporary. The one who possesses them is like the seed, which falls on the stony ground, which perhaps springs up with promise of fruitage, but soon withers in the sun, because it has no root in itself. It follows also, from what has been said, that salvation to be absolutely and solely of grace, that is God, that God is free, is consistent in consistency with the infinite perfections of his nature to save none, few, many, or all, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will. It also follows that salvation is not based on any merits in the creature, and that it depends on God, and not on men who are, and who are not, to be made partakers of eternal life. God acts as a sovereign in saving some and passing by others who are left to the just recompense of their sins. Sinners are compared to dead men, or even to dry bones in their entire helplessness. In this they are all alike. The choice of some to eternal life is a sovereign as if Christ were to pass through a graveyard and bid one here, and then another there to come forth. The reason for restoring one to life, and leaving another in his grave, could be found only in his, in his good pleasure, and not in the dead themselves. Hence the statement, that we are foreordained according to the good pleasure of his will, 
and not after the good inclinations of our own, and in order that we might be holy, not because we were holy, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, since all men alike deserved only God's wrath and curse, the gift of his only begotten Son to die in the stead of malefactors, as the only possible method of expiating their guilt, is the most stupendous exhibition of undeserved favour and personal love that the universe has ever witnessed. 4. The fall of man. The fall of the human race into a state of sin and misery is the basis and foundation of the system of redemption which is set forth in the scriptures. That is, is the basis and foundation of the system which we teach. Only Calvinists seem to take the doctrine of the fall very seriously. Yet the Bible from beginning to end declares that man is ruined, totally ruined, that he is in a state of guilt and depravity from which he is utterly unable to deliver himself, and that men and that God might in justice have left him to perish. In the Old Testament, the narrative concerning the fall is found in the third chapter of Genesis. And in the New Testament, direct references are made to it in Romans 5, 12-21, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, and 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, etc. Although the New Testament emphasizes not the historic fact that men fell, but the ethical fact that he is fallen. The New Testament writers interpret it literally and base their theology upon it. To Paul, Adam was as real as Christ. To Paul, as real as the atonement. It may be maintained that the apostles were in error, but that this was their position cannot be denied. Dr. A. A. Hodge has given us a very good statement of the doctrine of Paul, which we shall take the privilege of quoting. As a fair probation could not, in the nature of the case, be given to every member in person as it comes into existence as an undeveloped infant, God, as guardian of the race and for his best interest, gave all its members a trial in the person of Adam under the most favourable circumstances, making him for that end the representative and personal substitute of each one of his natural descendants. He formed with him a covenant of works and life, where he gave to him for himself, and in behalf of all whom he represented, a promise of eternal life, conditioned upon perfect obedience, that is, upon works. The obedience demanded was a specific test for a temporary period, which period of trial must necessarily be closed, either by the reward consequent upon obedience, or the death consequent upon disobedience. The reward promised was eternal life, which was a grace including far more than was originally bestowed upon Adam and his creation, the grant of which would have elevated the race into a condition of indefeasible holiness and happiness forever. The penalty threatened and executed was death. The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt, thou shalt surely die. The death, the nature of the death threatened, can be determined only from a consideration of all that was involved in the curse 
actually inflicted. This we know to have included the instant withdrawal of the divine favour and spiritual intercommunion upon which man's life depended. Hence the alienation and curse of God, the sense of guilt and corruption of nature, consequent actual transgressions, the miseries of of life, the dissolution of the body, the pains of hell. The consequences of Adam's sin are all comprehended under the term death in its widest sense. Paul gives us the summary statement that the wages of sin is death. The full import of the death which was threatened to Adam can only be seen by considering all the evil consequences which have since befallen man. It was primarily spiritual death or eternal separation from God which was threatened. And physical death or the death of the body is but one of the first fruits and relatively unimportant consequences of that greater penalty. Adam did not die physically for 930 years after the fall. But he did die spiritually the very moment he fell into sin. He died just as really as a fish dies when taken from the water or as a plant dies when taken from the soil. In general, we cherish a very wrong idea as to how Adam fell. Adam was not tempted by Satan in a direct way. Eve was tempted by Satan, and Eve fell being deceived. But we have inspired evidence to prove that Adam was not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. He was caught by no wiles of Satan, but that which he did, he did willfully and deliberately. And in the full consciousness of what he was doing, and with a perfect realization of the solemn consequences which were involved, he deliberately chose to follow his wife in her act of sinful disobedience. It was this deliberate willfulness of man's sin which constituted his heinous character. Had he been attacked by Satan and forced to yield through some overwhelming power being brought against him, we might have tried to find some excuse for his fall. But when, with eyes open, and with mind perfectly conscious and fully aware of the awful nature of his act, he used his free will to respond to the claims of the creature in defiance of the Creator, no excuse can be found for his fall. His act, in reality, was willful, defiant rebellion, and by it he openly transferred his allegiance from God to Satan. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.